Welcome to Exploring the Enneagram with Dr. E, featuring your host, Dr. Deborah Egerton. In this program, we take a look at how you can begin to see how you show up in the world by looking at your Enneagram personality type, improving your relationships, and so much more. Now, here is Dr. Deborah Egerton. How is everybody out there today? I hope you're all having a great day. I hope you're just feeling like uh, everything and anything is possible. Today, I have someone amazing with me uh, coming here from uh, New York City, my dear, dear friend and mentor, Russ Hudson. Uh, Russ is has, over the last three decades, he's become the premier top teacher and developer of the Enneagram personality typology. He teaches all over the world, and in the Enneagram world, Russ Hudson's name is a household word. Um, He's been writing and teaching full-time with the Enneagram Institute as well as on his own since 1991, and he has co-authored with Don Richard Riso, uh, five best-selling books on the subject, including The Wisdom of the Enneagram and Personality Types. If you know anything about the Enneagram, you know that wisdom is our sort of our our go-to book uh, when we're, we're looking and trying to figure something out. And when you read it, you can just get such a deep and fulfilling sort of uh, feeling about the people that actually authored this work. And Russ is one of the people that his imprint is all through that work in a very, very powerful way. Um, I want you to know that um, if you're starting out with the Enneagram and this is a new topic to you, uh, go pick up a copy of Wisdom because that will really help to inform the process for you. But most importantly, um, if you're looking at the Enneagram, I really like to be able to point people in the direction of teachers who have been doing this work for a very, very long time and who can help and guide you. Sometimes we hop on the Internet and we find all kinds of things and, well, you know, the Internet can be our friend and our enemy at the same time. So uh, today on this show, I want to introduce you to the person that is my go-to when we talk about the Enneagram, and I would love for you to just get an opportunity to meet him today. Hi, Russ. Are you with us today? Hi, Deborah. Yes, I am. Very happy to be here with you. Well, Russ, one of the things uh, that I want to say, of course, is happy birthday. Um, I don't think it's any surprise that this show would actually uh, come up right here on your birthday. And uh, I don't believe in coincidences, so I think this is pure synchronicity and it was meant to be. Well, I I think it is auspicious and it's pretty fun. And uh, yeah, it's one of the good kickoffs for our year. In our decade, actually, if you think about it. Well, there's a lot going on, and so we need a good kickoff, that's for sure. (laughs) Russ, um, for our listeners, I would just like to jump right into this Enneagram sort of typology and this Enneagram map and ground that um, you and I have been sort of walking around for a very long time, and... In your words, in the words of Russ Hudson, 
How do you define and describe the Enneagram? Well, the Enneagram is stubbornly resistant to easy sound bites because you learn a little bit and it just leads to a deeper understanding. There, there are many aspects to it. I think the short answer is the Enneagram is a way of looking at human behavior and human motivation. It is something that combines the psychological and the spiritual. It comes from the roots of Western spirituality and works its way through uh, some of the fundamental religions and philosophical perspectives of the West. Uh, but also, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a way of seeing what, what we share with a lot of other human beings, what defines how we cope with things, how we orient to things, how we deal with our emotions and things like that. But it also shows us that there's some parts of us that are beyond definition and description. That when we, when we see the ways that we are, in some sense, patterned, you know, by our, the, the things that we do to help us survive, we find a, a much more beautiful mystery. So the Enneagram to me is, is a, a system to help people understand themselves, to guide them to a deeper appreciation of who they are, what they are, the relationships in their lives, and to the deeper mystery that lies at the heart of everything we care about. I, I never said exactly like that, but that's what came out today. Well, I am so happy that I get the honor of having that you know, right here in my heart. And, uh, I, you know, it's one of those things where you want to just put down every word. Um, I hear what you're saying, and often when I do workshops, I will call my introductory uh, Enneagram workshop, Do You See What I See? Um, basing it on the reality that we have a limited capacity to be able to see ourselves and experience ourselves as other people do. So I would say to you, um, how do we actually begin to work with that a little bit? How do we, how do we sort of acquire the, the longing to even want to have the experience of ourselves the way other people see and experience us? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a, a couple elements to that, at least. Um, one thing is that, you know, the Enneagram is breaking the human psyche into nine categories or nine perspectives, nine orientations. And of course we have all of them in us, but one of them is what we lead with. I think when we start to see how often we do that, bells go off, we start to have some realizations. And if we can look at that without judging ourselves, without giving ourselves a hard time, or without congratulating ourselves either, but just to see the truth of it. it. It opens up like a secret door inside us, and more of the depth of what we're really about can come forward. Uh, I think that um, one thing that's really interesting about the Enneagram is it, it works in a system of three instead of two. 
Like in the ancient world, people thought this way. This kind of thinking we know existed in ancient Egypt. And so it goes back a long ways. But the idea is simply that if you've got two, if you've got good and bad, right and wrong, up and down, left and right, um, you know, in, out, all those kind of dichotomies are just, they just sit there. They're kind of clunky. They're static. But when you have three in, it becomes dynamic. It moves, it grooves, it wiggles, it's, it, it can go places. There's a, a, it's more like life and cycles and things. And it, I think that one of the first things that we get from learning the Enneagram is a little kind of more kindness for ourselves. We see reasons why we get into some of the trouble we do. Uh, and we see good things about ourselves that sometimes are not so easy for people to see. Absolutely. I, I, um, I so remember going through that struggle, uh, trying to find my particular personality type. And uh, the good things were not the first things that I noticed. Yes. And I really found myself on the sort of lesser downside of my better self that yeah. it just took me a while to accept and embrace. But uh, talking about these nine types, I know that many listeners don't know anything about nine types or any of that. Um, can you give us a little bit of an orientation to what those nine types sort of look like? Sure. Uh, well, they're not arbitrary, and the other thing I would tell people is that they're not based in the letters of your name or what birthday you have or any of that stuff. It's just by your own self-understanding. So even as, as you were just saying, Deborah, the search to find what my dominant pattern is, is, is a journey into a deeper self-knowledge. And with self-knowledge comes wisdom. Like the, the ancient Greeks had that on the Temple of Delphi, the statement, know thyself. And it's an important part of any kind of practical wisdom, but it's an important part of spiritual wisdom too, to really know who I am. And as I said, to see myself with compassion. So the Enneagram is looking at both our greatest gift, but how that gift overused becomes distorted. It becomes in service of dealing with stuff from our history. And so it really limits how much we're available to bring our best stuff into the world. And that's normal. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. That's how 99% of the people in this world are. But to begin to see how I've done that and to give myself a little credit for that even, like, wow, that was kind of amazing that I was able to survive and go through those experiences and found this way to do it, is the beginning of recognizing the deeper gift. So when I talk about the nine types, I like to start by talking about the gift. <clears throat> I speak about the gift first because my experience is, is if we see what's good about us, then it's not such a big deal to see how we can go off course with that sometimes and why. Because I think the Enneagram also helps us see why we go off course, why we react as we do. And the Enneagram is also very much about learning um, to be here now. <laughs> Good old uh, Ramdas just passed away. Yeah, uh, very sad. Recently, very sad. and had that wonderful book, Be Here Now. But I think most people can recognize that it's a good idea 
right? When we're in a conversation that we're actually there in the conversation, it's going to be better. If we're there with our work, if we're there, if I say I love you and I'm actually there really saying it, it, it means something. We also, also kind of know what it's like to go through the motions as people do much of their lives. <clears throat> so the Enneagram is also showing us ways to get back to who we are here and now where we will find these gifts as opposed to the gifts being in service of something that actually keeps us out of the here and now. The original sense of it, which came from the first monastics, the first monks and nuns in Christianity, uh, going back to, oh my goodness, like 300s and 400s, uh, was based in this understanding. The types were not about who you are. They were a study of what made you forget yourself and in those religious contexts, what made you forget the presence of God? So when we look at them, we can look at them as both a, a, a gift, a gift of spirit that is in our hearts and that we're here to express and live, but we can also see how the distortion of that, when we fall away from being here now, when we fall away from the receptivity to the spirit of the moment, we get caught in these patterns and various kinds of mischief unfold from that. So where shall I start? Start with one, start with eight, it doesn't matter. Do you start, care? With, uh, start with one. Okay. And, well, and you, know, you know I have a personal bias. Yes, so I, know I, why. I, I know why you have that bias, yes. <laughs> um, one is our, uh, we could start at one. There are different ways you can do this, but uh, one is about the part of us that wants to be good. It's the uh, element of us that is good, that recognizes goodness in ourself, in the world. It's that sacred feeling we get, and it isn't only there when there's good stuff happening. Sometimes tough things are happening, but that sense of dignity and sacredness can be there if our hearts are even a little bit open. And that exactly. sense of... <clears throat> And the, the idea here is that if I'm present with and here with myself, one element that is that appears is that the world is recognized in its integrity, its goodness. There's things make more sense. Absolutely. Um, and so the loss of that, when we're not present, the loss of that produces a kind of grief and a, and a resentment. Why isn't the world good? Why are people so? Corrupt. Why is everybody so awful? And it's the not question, the same. <clears throat> the question I often like to ask is, why is it so hard just to do the right thing? Why yes. is that so difficult? And why is everybody doing the wrong thing for heaven's Absolutely. sake? Absolutely. So, you know, it's not to say that there isn't intelligence in that perspective. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the more we're not present to ourselves, the more we can't see the good. So we have no basis for knowing how to fix things. We don't have a connection with a, a certain quality of our inner wisdom, our own integrity. So I was trying to have integrity, trying to create goodness, trying to find the right thing, but it's in a kind of reaction to the world that really hampers us in terms of seeing what actually is needed for ourselves and others. Absolutely. So everything becomes a kind of vicious circle. And I can also see where you were speaking earlier about how we tend to look at things in twos. 
right mm-hmm. or wrong, good or bad, up or yes. down. And so it's very, very clear that if you're in that sort of static state of mind, that you, you cannot really use the gift fully. You'll, That's right. You'll overuse it, but you'll use it in this uh, sort of, um, it's right or wrong, it's good or bad. You'll, you'll label everything in a way that is not helpful or useful, and it becomes um, not as much of a gift as it becomes judgment. Yes. It, it leads us to judging things. Right, and then we're, we're really stuck. Absolutely. And judgment is just trying to get to that good place, but... You know, like they say in the state of Maine, you can't get there from here. Exactly. Yeah, and in, in a sense, each of the types calls us to be present with what we're doing. And so if I'm an Enneagram 1, to use this example, I will catch myself judging, closing my heart, trying to fix everything, giving myself a really hard time, first and foremost. And at some point, you kind of come to the realization none of this is really helping me move toward what I love. Absolutely, and at, it, it's like all I know, but that's it's not working. It, it, it's a, a, a love for our listeners to know I am an Enneagram One, and <laughs> as I have shared with you many times before knowing you and learning the Enneagram, I felt like I was going through life with a brown paper bag, picking up broken shards of glass and rocks and bricks, and trying to get them to the right place. And at some point, I received a blessing of, Tipper, just put the darn bag down. (laughs) And I I did. You know, I put it down, and there was a liberation. And I believe that's where, instead of living in the world of twos, my world expanded when I was able to incorporate the threeness, the law of three, and I was able to move around in a space that did not require that I judge everything, that, yes. I, that, I, that I absolutely fix everything. And uh, Russ should be very happy to know there are some dirty dishes in my sink right now. Oh, I, and hallelujah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, but, you know, the other thing that I think people probably need to know is when we do that, it doesn't mean we stop caring. It doesn't mean we, we stop seeking the good. It, it, maybe we care even more. Right. However, when we are a little bit liberated from that right and wrong machine in our head, right, we have more wisdom available. We have more nuance available. We communicate better. We listen better. Absolutely. And in all of that, we become way more effective at bringing some good to this world. And, you know, I find that with the Enneagram, what it has done for me personally is that I carry all that a little more lightly. Um, It's not so heavy. And that frees me up not only to not be so harsh on myself, which translates out to not being harsh to other people, but it also frees me up to be more loving. It just allows more love to enter into anything that I'm doing because I do care. And yes. I think that's powerful. And, and so this, this, this law of three business, another way to talk about it is just that when you get to the heart of each of these, there's a paradox. There's two things that don't seem like they go together. And from our ego, 
they don't. But when you go to this deeper place, they do go together. They do make sense. There is another way through that we can't see when we're stuck in that this way or that way view right. of things. Right. So what about the two? Yeah. Two um, is next door neighbor of the one. Also trying to do right by people. But here it's more about kindness, love, taking care of the other, um, heart-to-heart connection, and responding to needs. Like feeding, if you see a baby and the baby's hungry, wait, pick the baby up and feed the baby, right? It's a very natural impulse, and it's the part that when we're present, we're kinder to ourselves and others, we feel more heart connection with people, even strangers. You just, you know, I live here in New York. I'm riding the subway and, you know, without staring or being weird with people, but sometimes we just see each other in the subway and there's that little moment like, hi, yeah, we see each other. And just that little sweet connection. It's not asking for anything or imposing anything, just that feeling. We can even have that feeling with animals, you know, we might have it with our dog or our cat. Um, or other creatures for that matter. And so there's a, there's this sweet holding heart quality and this sense of a natural responsiveness to need. Now, here's the tricky bit. When we're present, we, we yes, we respond to the needs of others without a lot of muss or fuss. You're cold, let me get a coat for you. It's, it's pretty straightforward. But we also are responsive to our own needs. I think most people actually have a harder time with that. Many people take or they grab or they go after things, but it's almost like in compensation for how badly they take care of themselves most of the time. To actually understand what it means to take care of my heart and soul is a life journey. And that's really the life journey of the two. And we do it not just out of some kind of selfishness, and we'll always get the message from those voices in our head, any move in this way is going to be selfish, but we're also doing it so we can give our best self to others. So we have something available. So, you know, in the kind of work that you and I do, we're there for a lot of people. People who are listening out there might be coaches or therapists or ministers or, you know, spiritual directors. Anybody that's working with people, we do it because it, it feels great. It feels wonderful to be of service. And that's really the two in all of us. However, you can go so far with that that you torpedo your own life. And then what do you really bring to others? Whereas I sometimes will tell when I'm coaching people who are in the helping professions, which you want your clients to live the way you live. I love that. I absolutely love that. You know, my background is um, that of being a psychotherapist. And the saddest thing, whenever I had a two- uh, client in psychotherapy would be, um, let's say I had a client who um, had gone through a recent divorce and uh, was coming to see me because they were um, just not quite able to put their lives back together again. And very often, if the client was a two, it was because their lives had been so focused on other rather than self. And I would just ask the simple question. I'd say, okay, let's get a new routine in place, something that feels good for you. Let's go down to the kitchen, and let's talk about what you would like for breakfast. And what I would hear is, 
Well, Martin used to like his eggs scrambled, and Mary liked them over easy, and I would always have to give Jeff cereal, and I'd say, no, what, what would you like for breakfast? What are you going to make for yourself? And I would just get silence, just silence, because... Yes. There was no capacity to be able to think about just what I want as a human being. It was yeah. all other focused. And so that was a, 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 it was always somewhat heartbreaking for me, but at the same time very rewarding to point that out to say, now let's spend some time observing over the weeks to come what you like, what feels good for you what time you need to take for yourself. Just like the flight attendants say, put that oxygen mask on yourself first and then on anyone who is traveling with you that is a child or acting like a child, then help them out too. Yes. Uh, but I, I, uh, my, my heart would always go out to the very loving twos who had given it all away and now yeah. they were exhausted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, is, when I'm working with people who have two as their dominant pattern, I always remind them, don't worry. You're not going to ever be ungenerous. Your nature is to be generous. Your nature is to be empathic. Your nature is to tune into what everybody needs around you. You're always going to be like that. By getting better self-care and self-awareness of what you need, it's not going to make you stop doing those other things, but to make you more wise about the limits of your energy, it will make it easier for other people to relate to you. You know, we become more human in a way. And when we own our human limitations and needs, uh, there's nothing spiritual about pretending to be an angel. Right, that's not going to help anybody out. That is true. That is very... And, 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 and the wings... A lot of us fall into that one, you know? <laughs> I know. The wings are not going to magically appear. <laughs> no, and even if we had them, we were going to fly too close to the sun, and you know that story. <laughs> we know that story. It doesn't so, end well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so two, you know, that's the issue, is that as I move away from presence, that beautiful heart connection, generosity, and responding to need becomes... A kind of codependency becomes the way I'm always taking care of other people and neglecting myself such that when it finally is my turn, I might indulge myself or do kind of treats that aren't really so good for me to kind of make up for all the ways I've given myself away. So, you know, we don't want to get to that point. Uh, Also, when we're functioning that way, as I was saying, it makes it really hard for other people to connect with us because we don't give them a space. We're so busy moving into their needs and, and their life that they can't get into ours. And when it's like that, there's like an imbalance in the relationship. Yes. And even though I'm the one who wants to connect so badly, I really want to feel close to people. By this pattern, I make it very difficult for people to connect with me. That is very clear. And I see that quite a bit even on, say, leadership teams. Uh, where people are working together. And sometimes um, I can see where the individual who sits at the point of two on the Enneagram as their dominant you know, pattern, their dominant type, what can happen is they do not leave the space for other people to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, they will actually take 
over doing things in a way where it's not helping, particularly their subordinates. Yes. So I found some really interesting patterns that emerge around the, the you know, type two with, um, in the workplace, it's just, you're trying to be helpful, you're trying to accomplish so much, you're trying to get it done, but it doesn't help the growth of other people when you yeah. get over that whole space. Yes. And needless to say, that can happen when you're a two-parent and you're just doing too much for your kids and then they don't develop certain things they need to develop. So even though there's so much good here and this loving, attentive, helpful quality, I mean, who doesn't like that? When it's overdone, it becomes a problem. And just as we're seeing with each one of them. Right. And it's so apparent how that pattern is emerging in each of the types. When we overdo it, Whatever that, you know, that good thing is, too much of anything can be a little problematic. Yes, um, so, right. you know, we're not trying to take anyone's uh, integrity away. We're not trying to take anyone's capacity to love as hard as you can away. But just to be aware of how you may be overusing that. So yes. when we talk about overusing, what happens with the threes? Ah, well, three is a, a, the kind of person who, well, at their core, their gift is, is, has to do with their capacity to do things and to do things well, to be efficient, effective, competent. These are all things that are valued in the world. But the, at the best core of three, it's like we're doing everything from our heart. We're doing everything out of love. And there's not really a separation between our functioning in the world and doing the stuff that life asks us to do and our being mm, connected to our inner life, to our soul, you could say. So much of modern life splits those two apart. So maybe we do our prayer, we do our meditation, we do something, and then we go out and live like maniacs the rest of the time. That's how most people are. And we're just going, and then, you know, we get to the end of the day, well, what was all that? So there's a way that when we're not present, it's a weird thing, but our functioning in the world becomes kind of automatic and disconnected from our heart. The other thing is when we're functioning and we are connected with our heart, our life feels meaningful, valuable, rich. We don't need self-esteem pep talks. We naturally feel how amazing and wonderful it is to be who we are. We're just so grateful to have the gifts and talents we have, and we're ready to develop whatever God has given us, so to speak. So that's the high side of three, and who wouldn't like that? That's a marvelous way to live. And then, as I said, all the work we do is, is like sacred work. It's, it's a gift. It's a, it's a love offering. And we also, when we're living that way, we tend to plug into what in religious life is called vocation. We start to feel a calling. When you're living that way, you start to feel like you are here for a reason and you start to learn what that is, which is a pretty wonderful thing. And that isn't always some big fancy career thing. Some of us are here to be amazing parents, for example. Some of us are here to really make sure a team can follow its vision. You know, some of us are here 
to help people who are are having a difficult time and they've come into our bar and we're sitting across from them and we know that our listening to them can be a help. You know, there's all kind of ways that we we our life can be of service and it isn't always something fancy schmancy. When we're living this way, even doing simple tasks is rewarding. Even cleaning the kitchen is just when you're cleaning the kitchen with presence and you're connected to your heart, it's like blissful. Right? And so all of us probably have found some things in life that are like that. So if you're a three, that's what you're looking for. That's that's the core thing. But when we disconnect from presence, that functioning disconnects from the heart and we're doing more and more and we're trying to get back that feeling of value and meaning and preciousness. But no matter how much we do, it doesn't produce it. So then we get the idea that if we become more successful, we make more money, if we're we're more of a big shot, if we uh, achieve all our goals, we get all our tasks done today. If we, we keep jumping over those hurdles, we're going to finally feel good about ourselves. But my goodness, friends, if there's anything we can learn from modern life, from what we see in the headlines, uh, the stories we, we hear about very successful people, it ought to tell us that people achieve all these things and it doesn't necessarily bring them home. It doesn't make them feel better in about who they are. And we get tragic stories even when people end their life because they did everything they thought they were supposed to do and they still have that emptiness inside. When we're not when this disconnect happens that I'm talking about in the three, we feel empty. And we feel like, what do I have to do to to fill that emptiness inside? And American society is very much driven by this particular motivation that the Enneagram describes. I see that all the time and the the busyness, um, you know, filling every moment, having to have something on the calendar, something to do, uh, the need to to have one task after another. And so often with uh, threes and, and, and the society that we live in does support that, it seems to be so important to do a million things. And I think about the parents who sometimes will do this with their children. Every minute of the day is filled from the time that they you know, leave school to all of the different extracurricular activities that the children are participating in. And there's this pressure to make sure that either your child is engaged in doing something all the time, um, and that you're engaged in doing something all the time, working, uh, being on boards, um, having a lot of activity in your life. Um, and sometimes it, it, it's just a really good idea to stop and take a look at that because what's that all about? doesn't have yeah. to just be that that's your point on the Enneagram you know, personality map, but it could be that that's just something that you're doing that you need to pause and think about what's that about. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're saying, I think all of these points, besides being a kind of person, are also a life lesson. And I hope that as we're going through these, everybody can sort of recognize there are lessons for our own lives in each one of these. The busyness can be part of three and also part of seven. We'll get to that a little later. But here, it's more about 
proving myself. I'm worth it because look, I sold X number of, I had so many streams on Spotify. Look at that. I did this. Look at that. And yet, you know, I, I counseled and coached very successful people. I've worked with people who have been hugely, um, successful in their chosen career. I've met people who won Olympic gold medals and they tell me over and over again about how getting so caught up in all that deprived them in some sense of the satisfaction that we would hope they would have from having done these things. And when that keeps going on and on and on, and that, that disconnect grows, we feel emptier and emptier, we're doing more and more, and we hit burnout. We just hit the point where we just can't do it anymore. We, we, and, and so there's so much, even collective burnout, I feel, in our society right now, a kind of resignation. Like, my gosh, we couldn't be working any harder, trying to fight the good fight, trying to make the right things happen, etc., etc. And, you know, so and that's an indication that we need to reconnect. Sometimes we just have to slow down a little bit, as you were saying. It, it's, it's not like I have to go in slow motion or something, but you just just a little bit slower than when I'm, you know, racing from one activity to the next and from one goal to the next. And present in whatever the activity is or present yes. with what you are trying to achieve. Um, I, I think that racing through, you know, and looking at setting the, the bar higher and higher and higher, uh, that in itself can be exhausting. And yet I hear people talk about that as, well, it's it's excellence. I'm in pursuit of excellence. Yeah. Um, but the burnout rate that happens from being in pursuit of excellence is pretty scary. Yeah. And they, there's a way of pursuing excellence that can doesn't have to un, do, uproot us from our yeah. ourself. And if you look at some of the most amazing people, if you look, I always like to study, for example, martial arts masters and people like that have really learned something to a kind of a profound, almost superhuman level. They're not uprooting themselves. There's a way that their, their, their whole movements, their activities, their thoughts are finely trained. So this is not saying that the pursuit of greatness in this world is a bad thing. Far from it. It's saying that if we do it without our heart and soul as involved in the process, we're going to fry ourselves and we're going to probably not produce a result that's going to mean anything much to us in the long run, even if other people see it as successful. There's, there's nothing more empty than everybody congratulating you and you feel like... That's a pretty sad experience. Yes, and unfortunately, it's one that um, is not an uncommon experience. Yeah. People who have done such great things, and yet the, the sense of satisfaction and whatever it is that they're waiting for to click in the heart, it doesn't happen. And that leads into some very profound questions. And I think that you could say in one way that the whole Enneagram is trying to help us answer that question, but the four is specifically about this. And what I often will remark is that 
you can't exactly define what the self is. It's kind of mysterious. It's something profound. It's it's eludes easy description. It eludes easy definition. And when you drop in deeper, you notice that when you come closer to yourself, it is something to do with your heart. That's why the heart becomes so important in spiritual tradition. And just even regular folks kind of know that <clears throat> our authentic self has something to do with our heart. Or let's say we recognize it in our heart. And so when you come closer to what that is, it is more mysterious. It, it's kind of deep and resonant. But the symptom I always like to point out that I don't think is necessarily obvious is that when you come closer to this deeper sense of the heart, life and the world becomes more beautiful. And by that, I don't mean pretty. I don't mean my usual taste. Thing, I start to see and feel and hear beauty in things that ordinarily I wouldn't. Because beauty is, is sort of a, a way, it, it's the gateway into intimacy. And intimacy is, for me, the recognition of this deeper heart place where we find out who we are and who the other person is too. If you have an intimate moment with a, with a loved one, you know, we tend to associate that with sexuality and stuff, but a lot of our intimacy has nothing to do with that. You, you might have that moment where you really see each other, you really feel each other, and in that moment, all of your old tiresome ideas about you and the other person just kind of fall away. And you're there in the beauty of that moment, the mystery of that moment, the intimacy of that moment, and that's what our heart is so hungry for. We just don't get enough of those moments. So the four is about that part of human experience and trying to express it, trying to invite people into that. Now, when we're not present and we lose presence, we get more stuck in our personality, we're hung up on intimacy as wanting to get into conversations about ourselves, our issues, our feelings. We get hung up on beauty, not so much as being open to beauty, but as insisting that people appreciate my taste and me not liking when people don't have good taste. Oh my God, you like that music? Can't believe it. And, and sort of we, we concoct an identity here on how we're not like other people. Because that's the only way the ego can do it. The ego creates identity by differentiation. I'm not like mom, I'm not like dad, I'm not like brother and sister, I'm not like those other kids at school, and therefore I have to be different. But you see the heart also wants to connect in that intimacy, but when you're busy trying to show how you're not like other people, and you're trying to be intimate at the same time, it creates kind of a train wreck inside. And a lot of emotional turbulation and confusion, and that's kind of the stuck area of, of fourness. I just also add that for reasons I don't entirely know, but I can make some guesses, in the United States and Canada, North America, everybody tends to think they're a four at first. <laughs> many, many, many people who aren't just jump on this four bandwagon, I'm deeper than other people. First of all, if you're thinking that, even if you are a four, you're way off track. You have no way to know that. 
I'm deeper than other people. How the heck would you know that? That's a that's a very narcissistic statement. And it's denying the depth of the other people, which shows me in that moment, if I'm thinking that, I'm not deep in that moment. That's not a very deep thought, that I'm deeper than other people. I think people like to also think of the four as the type that's sad or depressed or had troubles in childhood. But sheesh, all nine types can be depressed. All nine types have difficulties from their childhood. All nine types have deep feelings. That doesn't make you a type. It makes you a human being. Absolutely. I am so delighted that you cleared that up um, because, you know, even in teaching the four, so very often people will come right back to that space of, well, that person can't be a four because they're not gloomy enough. They're not dark enough. You know, they're, they're, they're not tortured enough. But there was something that you said some years ago that I've never forgotten. And I always say this when I'm, when I'm teaching the Enneagram when it comes to four. You said that the fours are the holders or the keepers of the beauty in the world. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was such an amazing way to uh, kind of take something that has been sort of distorted over time, because you do hear this, they're all dark, they're all gloomy, they're all moody, and they're impossible to get along with. You'll hear that. You will hear people yeah. perpetuate that myth. Um, but when you think of the fours and what they actually do sort of go through to hold on to the beauty of the world and to bring it back out in a beautiful creative form, uh, that to me is just such a different way of looking at this than what many people are teaching. Yes, I think that's true. I think that the beauty is an important element. And the other is, and this it's a little different than saying they're dark or difficult. Fours appreciate sadness as a necessary human emotion. Absolutely. That, that a heart that does can't go to sadness is not a very complete heart. And that often as you experience beauty, it brings a sadness. It brings a melancholy. It brings a longing. And that sadness is is doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. It's just a normal human emotion that, you know, the traditional religions all deal with that reality in various ways. My goodness, look at Christian and Jewish art and the stories from Islam. You're going to find a lot of sadness in there. It's only in the modern world that we think people should be happy, happy, happy all the time. Historically, no one expected that. And so we have to, if we're going to be present, we're also going to be present to sadness. And sadness is very close to kindness. Yes. And sensitivity. And the ability to be able to be with your sadness. Now, sadness can tilt into self-pity and self-obsession. And that's like a, a, a path that force can get stuck in that we don't want to go down. But presence, that sadness, opens our hearts to others' difficulties, to sensitivity, to seeing we're not alone in this. You know, that, that and so it becomes a very important element. Um, so I think fours, when they're in their personality, are suspicious of people who are too cheerful. They don't trust them. Because they said, well, like, you're not really being, the, the idea for fours in their personality is, if you're too cheerful, 
you're not really dealing honestly with your own sadness. Therefore, you can't be authentic with me. Therefore, we can't go deep, so I can't take you very seriously. Right, you're, you're, you're not authentic and you're faking it. Right, so. you're, just, you're not dealing with your stuff. So therefore, right. you know, I can't... I, you're, you're nice, you're fine, but don't expect to get into my deep thing that I want to get into. Russ, do you feel like forests have a, a greater capacity for being with people in their sadness that they can hold the space with you? Yes, I think that is one of the great gifts of Ford. It's one that Ford grows into. I mean, if we're stuck in the foreness, it can be so overwhelming and we get very kind of self, we feel sorry for ourselves, we get very self-involved, and we kind of spiral into a kind of a whirlpool where we can't get out of thinking about ourselves and our feelings and our issues all the time. It's like a quicksand. But as we find our legs and get grounded and get more present, yes, I think one of the greatest gifts of Ford is the sensitivity and the capacity to support people being wherever they need to be emotionally. Yes. They're not going to run for the box of Kleenex as soon as someone's crying. They said, let them cry. They need to. <laughs> and let them cry ugly if they need to. <laughs> if, if they need to, right. So the, that's the, the great part of Healthy Four is they, there's no need to edit or hide what we're experiencing or feeling. Everything is welcome. You, you hate somebody, tell me about it. It's beautiful. That is really, really beautiful. So as we move from four to five, mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting transition because something's happening there, moving out yes. of the heart center and moving into the head center. Yeah, just just to explain that, the last three types we've looked at, the two, three, and four, all heart types, meaning their issues are constellated around being present in the heart or not. And then the, the, the next ones, five, six, and seven, are all about the headset. Russ, thanks so much for being with us today. We really enjoyed having our discussion about the Enneagram, and we're sending a heartfelt thank you out to all of our listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Exploring the Enneagram with me, Dr. E. I'll be looking forward to being with you again next week, where Russ and I will continue moving through the types. We started today with ones. However, today's show really mostly centered on the heart types, two, three, and four. And we'll return next week with five, six, and seven. You don't want to miss out. You never know exactly whose type you might hear about that may just open a door to greater understanding, more kindness, compassion, and love. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Exploring the Enneagram with Dr. E. Please join Dr. Deborah Egerton again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a good week. <laughs>